The Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. But how do we know when the government's actions cross the line from reasonable to unreasonable? And how have technological advances, used by both police and the subjects of their investigations, affected this line? For much of our nation's history, our courts have asked whether the government physically intruded on private property to determine whether it violated the Fourth Amendment. But in 1967, the Supreme Court adopted a new standard looking at whether the government violated an individual's reasonable expectation of privacy. In recent years, however, the property-based approach has been making a comeback, first with Justice Scalia and now with Justice Gorsuch. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on DIST, we're looking at Carpenter versus United States. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Let's start with the basics. The Fourth Amendment protects against the government, typically the police, conducting unreasonable searches and seizures of people and their homes, papers, and effects. The point of the Fourth Amendment, which is not always grasped by zealous law enforcement, is to restrain officers engaged in what Justice Robert Jackson once called the often competitive enterprise of ferreting out crime. This calls to mind the depiction of police in pursuit of drug dealers in the iconic HBO show The Wire. We do not lose, and we do not forget, and we do not give up, ever. So I'm only going to say this one time. If you march your ass out here right now and put the bracelets on, we will not kick the living out of you. Because you do not get to win, bird. We do. The competitive enterprise of ferreting out crime indeed. The framers of the Fourth Amendment knew a thing or two about overzealous law enforcement. As Chief Justice John Roberts explained in Riley v. California, The Fourth Amendment was the founding generation's response to the reviled general warrants and writs of assistance of the colonial era, which allowed British officers to rummage through homes in an unrestrained search for evidence of criminal activity. Opposition to such searches was, in fact, one of the driving forces behind the revolution itself. In 1761, the patriot James Otis delivered a speech in Boston denouncing the use of writs of assistance. A young John Adams was there, and he would later write that, quote, every man of a crowded audience appeared to me to go away, as I did, ready to take arms against writs of assistance. According to Adams, Otis's speech was, quote, the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. Here's more on that from a leading Fourth Amendment scholar. My name is Oren Kerr. I'm a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. The Fourth Amendment was largely about banning general warrants, which was a practice uh, in England that allowed the king's officials to go anywhere and search for anything and take anything away. Uh, and there had been, a, been a, a series of cases in the, really in the 1760s in which English judges had said, hey, you can't do this. Uh, these general warrants give the government too much power. You need to have warrants that are based on probable cause and that are particular about where the government's going and what the government's getting. Drawing from this colonial experience, the Fourth Amendment was supposed to prevent the government from intruding on private property unless an officer first obtained a warrant. 
That required an officer to present evidence of a suspected crime under oath to a neutral magistrate and specify the place that would be searched and items that would be seized. The text of the Fourth Amendment, which mentions houses, papers, and effects, makes a clear connection to property, but it raises a lot of questions. What counts as a search? What's unreasonable? We turn to a property rights expert for answers. I'm James Stern, and I'm professor of law at William & Mary Law School. There developed some some basic principles to guide this that were closely related to the law of of property. On the one hand, and just where the, the line on this was, was a point of contention, but the kinds of activities that constituted a search were generally those that had a trespassory feel to them. So that's uh, that's one end of it. At the same time, property also served in an important way to uh, uh, to limit what was what were what were reasonable uh, searches in the first place. There was a general rule, though there were exceptions to it, uh, known as the mere evidence rule. That uh, held there were there were various reasons why your property could be searched, but the but merely searching for evidence was not one of them. Um, and this was grounded in a, a property idea because the idea was uh, the, the police could take your stuff, go through your stuff, where they had a superior claim to it in property or property-like principles. So where you have contraband, that is to say things that you're not allowed to possess in the first place, uh, where we're dealing with the instrumentalities of crime themselves, you know, like lockpick keys, and where we're dealing with the fruits of crime, stolen goods, in those situations, police could um, could conduct a search. And what were you supposed to do when the government violated your rights? The Supreme Court didn't adopt what's known as the exclusionary rule until the 20th century, which allows a criminal defendant to ask a court to refuse to hear evidence the government obtained in violation of the Constitution. So what was the remedy for violations of the Fourth Amendment for more than a century? Here's James. Um, generally, you'd sue for damages, and you'd sue for damages if where your, your stuff was involved by bringing something like a trespass action. Well, when I say something like, I mean a trespass action. Uh, you'd sue to um, uh, you'd sue for damages for someone who invaded your property, or you'd sue to get your stuff back. That's what I meant by trespass. Like you'd sue to to recover uh, goods that had been unlawfully taken from you, or it, where your own person was concerned, you'd sue for uh, you could sue for release from uh, from custody or for for uh, for damages uh, on these bases. Early on. It was easy enough to tell when the government had violated the Fourth Amendment by physically entering private property. It wasn't until later in our nation's history that courts would struggle with the contours of that right, particularly as it relates to technological advances. Here's Oren again. Yeah, so there's basically nothing in the history about what searches of persons' houses, papers, and effects meant, except it was understood that clearly it it covered physical invasion of a home. So there were a few efforts to grapple with what was a search, but um, it really didn't matter until fairly late in the development of the Fourth Amendment, because um, really the need to exactly understand what is a search followed from the exclusionary rule, this idea that evidence unconstitutionally obtained is suppressed. Uh, That doesn't come along until the 20th century. So there's there's basically almost no Fourth Amendment case law on what is a search until the 1920s, 1930s, and they kind of grapple with this question without any answer until the 1960s. 
that brings us to the criminal justice revolution of the 1960s, the heyday of pro-defendant SCOTUS rulings ranging from requiring the government to turn over exculpatory evidence to the defense, appointing counsel for criminal defendants who couldn't afford it, Mirandizing suspects upon arrest, and much more. The court also recognized a new Fourth Amendment standard, that it protects a reasonable expectation of privacy. Here's Orrin again. And in Katz versus United States, the 1967 case, which involved taping a microphone to the top of a public phone booth, the Katz goes in and, and uses the phone booth. And the court has to kind of figure out, is that a Fourth Amendment search that requires a warrant or not? After all, a phone booth isn't a house, paper, or effect. Ba- basically, what the, the, the key problem in Katz was that tapping, putting a microphone on the top of a phone booth to listen to somebody's public phone calls, you know, this is the old phone booth you'd go in and put your nickel, close the door and have like, you know, two minutes to place your call. That had become by the 1960s kind of the equivalent of a home. Like that, that was kind of your slightly outside of your home, nonetheless, home. Um, and so the Fourth Amendment, the thought was like, well, the Fourth Amendment should protect that because it's basically your private space when you go in and, and, put your phone, you know, put your coin in there and close the door. And they didn't quite know how to express that. Here's James Stern on what was going on in Katz. There's a sort of a a slogan that the Katz uh, majority and the Stewart opinion throws out. The Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. Um, At one level, that's obviously true. No, no house is ever sued to vindicate its Fourth Amendment rights. Um, That's not how it works. But uh, Uh, At the same time, it is the case that the Fourth Amendment is deeply concerned with with places and with stuff uh, and its nature. Is it public? Is it private? And uh, the same person receives different uh, protection depending on the place where they are. You you aren't protected to the same extent in public as you are in private. Uh, What I see happening in part in Cats, there's a lot of, uh, as the young people would say, they throw a lot of shade on property and property-based concepts. Uh, and they say, you know, we're, we've, we've outgrown these old-fashioned uh, ways of doing things and, and the property just isn't delivering the kind of protection that we need. And uh, what's interesting to me is that the same thing is happening outside the Fourth Amendment. And right around the time of Katz, in tort law, they're developing um, a series of torts, uh, uh, the, the tort scholar Prosser was the, the giant in this. He sort of proposes these four uh, privacy torts. Uh, uh, and the big one here is the tort of intrusion upon seclusion, which basically uh, is occupying the same space in a lot of ways for private parties that the Fourth Amendment is for the police and other government officials. What the court did in Katz uh, in, in, as I would see it, is they tried to basically do the same thing in Fourth Amendment law that was happening in tort law anyway. Justice John Marshall Harlan II, grandson of the great dissenter Justice John Marshall Harlan, wrote a concurrence that would come to define the Katz ruling. Here's Oren again. The majority writes a completely cryptic opinion that, that, that sort of doesn't answer this, just says this is protected because of the public role of the telephone and just sort of doesn't really say like what is the test and then justice harlan writes a very short concurring opinion and and often happened as often happened in the warren court era justice harlan basically was like trying to bat clean like clean up what's going on like let's turn this into some sort of a legal framework and what did justice harlan come up with and what he said is looking at the cases that existing then there was this sort of two-part test the first which was what was protected was um 
whether society would recognize a reasonable expectation of privacy in that thing in terms of figuring out things that were protected. And then the second was you had to manifest, in terms of when it was protected, you, the person had to manifest a subjective expectation of privacy uh, in that. This is this two-part CATS test. And so the, the, the idea of society is prepared to recognize your expectation of privacy is reasonable, which sounds like really, really like, like made up and sort of like, well, that could just be anything. I think what they were probably trying to do is just say like, that is the modern technological equivalent of your home now. Home doesn't just mean physical home or houses doesn't just mean physical houses. That This is a broader concept about where, are, what are the spaces and things where there's privacy, where that are sort of the virtual equivalent. And therefore it is a home for Fourth Amendment purposes. Not long after, the court confronted what happens to your reasonable expectation of privacy when you share information with another person. Two cases from the late 1970s, Smith versus Maryland and United States versus Miller, would establish the third party doctrine. Here's Oren again. Yeah, so the third party doctrine is the idea that when you knowingly disclose information in particular to someone else, you don't have Fourth Amendment rights in that which you knowingly disclose. So if I tell you, um, hey, I robbed a bank last week and the police go to you and say, did Kerr mention anything about robbing a bank? And you say, yes, actually he did mention robbing a bank. I can't say, hey, you violated my Fourth Amendment rights. That's my private information because I shared it with you. And once I've shared it with you, the information is basically your information, not, not my information at that point. And I think that was the idea that Justice Harlan um, had in his two-part test with manifesting a subjective expectation of privacy. You need to enclose your spaces if you want to have Fourth Amendment rights in them. Um, but what happens is those cases end up um, being relabeled as the reasonable expectation of privacy. And the rule becomes you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in information that is knowingly disclosed to a third party. Um, so uh, that is either, depending on how you look at it, like a ridiculous made-up doctrine uh, it, for what is a reasonable expectation of privacy, or it's just the idea that if you want Fourth Amendment rights in something, you can't tell people it and then say, that's mine. It, you, it becomes theirs once you disclose that information to them, because information disclosed is, is, is not yours to control anymore. But as James puts it, one of the big knocks against cats is that it's very subjective and malleable, and it can mean what what uh, whomever wants to make it mean can can do with it. Fast forward to the new millennium and newfangled technology continues to pose new questions for law enforcement and individual liberty. GPS trackers can follow your every move 24 hours a day. Drones can hover over your property and document your activities. iPhones contain vast amounts of information about your daily life. Cell phone towers collect your location data and send it to wireless providers. You there, listening to this podcast in your car, connecting your phone to your car's radio via Bluetooth. Do you really think you're alone right now? Does all this change our expectations of privacy? And is this even the best standard for ensuring government complies with the Fourth Amendment and respects individual liberty? Here's then-Judge Neil Gorsuch during his confirmation hearing in 2017, explaining how courts can apply the Fourth Amendment to changing technology. I take United States versus Jones, recent case from the United States Supreme Court involving whether 
police officers might attach a GPS tracking device to a car, modern technology. How do you apply the original constitution written 200 years ago to that? And the court went back and looked at the law 200 years ago. And one of the things it found was that attaching something to someone else's property is a trespass to chattels at common law and would be considered a search. And the court held that if that's a trespass to chattels and a search 200 years ago, it has to be today, though the technology is obviously different. So the technology changes, but the principles don't. And it can't be the case that the United States Constitution is any less protective of the people's liberties today than it was the day it was drafted. We'll talk more about Jones later, but you get the idea. Even though the framers never in their wildest dreams would have imagined today's technology, the Constitution and Bill of Rights set out enduring principles that can be applied to modern situations. So let's talk about how the Supreme Court has tackled issues arising from law enforcement's use of new technology. The first big Fourth Amendment challenge of the 2000s came in Kylo versus United States, when the court was asked to decide if police use of thermal imaging to monitor activity inside a person's home was a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. The court ruled 5-4 that this crossed the line, and police had to obtain a warrant to conduct this kind of surveillance. One side note. This was decided in the summer of 2001, before the September 11th terrorist attacks ushered in the Patriot Act in a very different era. Justice Scalia explained, It would be foolish to contend that the degree of privacy secured to citizens by the Fourth Amendment has been entirely unaffected by the advance of technology. The question we confront today is what limits there are upon this power of technology to shrink the realm of guaranteed privacy. The makeup of the court in Kylo is not what you might expect. Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion, which is joined by David Souter, Clarence Thomas, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Stephen Breyer. And in dissent, there was John Paul Stevens, William Rehnquist, Sandra Day O'Connor, and Anthony Kennedy. The Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments tend to create strange bedfellows at the Supreme Court. But back to Scalia's opinion. There was a glimmer of the property-based approach returning. Here's Scalia. In the case of the search of, of the interior of homes, there is a ready criterion with roots deep in the common law of that minimal expectation of privacy which exists and which is acknowledged to be reasonable. We think that obtaining by sense-enhancing technology any information regarding the interior of the home that could not otherwise have been obtained without physical intrusion into a constitutionally protected area constitutes a search. A decade later, the court heard United States versus Jones, a challenge to police's warrantless use of GPS tracking on a suspect's car. The case you heard then Judge Gorsuch reference earlier. Scalia again wrote for the majority. We hold that the government's physical intrusion on the Jeep for the purpose of obtaining information constitutes a search. This type of encroachment on an area enumerated in the amendment would have been considered a search within the meaning of the amendment at the time it was adopted. The text of the amendment reflects its close connection to property, since otherwise it would have referred simply to the right of the people to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. That's not what it says. It says to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects 
against unreasonable searches and seizures. The, uh, that last phrase would have been superfluous. Consistent with this understanding, our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence was tied to common law trespass, at least until the latter half of the 20th century. Our later cases, of course, have departed from an exclusively property-based approach. Katz did not repudiate the understanding that the Fourth Amendment embodies a particular concern for government trespass upon the areas that it enumerates. The reasonable expectation of privacy test has been added to, not substituted for, the common law trespassory test. Justice Samuel Alito concurred in the judgment. That means he agreed with the outcome, but not the reasoning of the majority opinion. He raised concerns about focusing on trespass to property and instead said that the court should focus on whether government violated Jones's reasonable expectation of privacy. Here are some highlights from Justice Alito's concurrence. It's almost impossible to think of late 18th century situations that are analogous to what took place in this case. Is it possible to imagine a case in which a constable secreted himself somewhere in a coach and remained there for a period of time in order to monitor the movements of the coach's owner? The court's theory seems to be that the concept of a search, as originally understood, comprehended any technical trespass that led to the gathering of evidence. But, quote, the court's reasoning largely disregards what is really important, the use of a GPS for the purpose of long-term tracking, and instead attaches great significance to something that most would view as relatively minor, attaching to the bottom of a car a small light object that does not interfere in any way with the car's operation. If long-term monitoring can be accomplished without committing a technical trespass, suppose, for example, that the federal government required or persuaded auto manufacturers to include a GPS tracking device in every car, the court's theory would provide no protection. In short, Alito is focused on the practical consequences. But he acknowledges that Katz isn't perfect. He wrote, The expectation of privacy test avoids the problems and complications noted above, but it is not without its own difficulties, particularly... What is a reasonable expectation of privacy, and how does new technology change that? The good news, from Alito's perspective, is that concern about new intrusions on privacy may spur the enactment of legislation to protect against these intrusions. So what's going on here with this back and forth between Alito and Scalia? Orrin has a theory. You can best understand uh, the fracture as between the justices that kind of have an originalist project to bring Fourth Amendment doctrine back into an originalist lens and the justices that don't. Um, so Justice Scalia in Jones says, well, we've, you know, attaching a GPS device to the bottom of a car is trespassery. Uh, it would have been a trespass at common law. He doesn't provide any analysis for why that's true. It is actually not totally obvious that it's true. But he says, um, yes, this is the trespass test, which has always existed and which Katz did not intend to supplant. But he says, we bring this back, and this is uh, installing the GPS device is a search, regardless of whether it affects reasonable expectations of privacy, and there are these two different tests. Um, And Justice Alito just basically first is like, well, wait a minute, this test is not there. Like, we have not not understood this test to be there, and what does it mean, and where are you going with this? And we, we should answer this problem by reference to reasonable expectations of privacy instead. Then, two years later, the Supreme Court heard Riley versus California, asking whether police officers can search the cell phone of an arrestee without first getting a warrant. Chief Justice John Roberts had the opinion. Here's the chief. Modern cell phones not only hold vastly more information 
than could phys- physically be carried before. They also contain whole new types of information that implicate significant privacy interests. There you are, dear listener, in your car, your office, or at the gym. And Chief Justice Roberts isn't just speaking rhetorically. He's speaking to you. An Internet browsing history on your phone will reveal what you're interested in and what you've been looking for. Routine location services on your phone will record where you've been for the past day, week, or month. Cell phones will also contain a record of who you've communicated with by phone, email, or text, including the content of many exchanges going back months. Then there are apps. The average smartphone user has 33 of them on his phone. There are over a million available in each of the major app stores. Do you follow Democratic or Republican news? Do you track particular medical symptoms? What are your hobbies? What have you purchased over the past six months? The apps on your phone can paint a detailed picture of who you are, all at the tap of a screen. Allowing a warrantless search of all this information is not just an incidental intrusion. Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone seized incident to an arrest is accordingly simple. Get a warrant. That brings us to Carpenter versus United States in 2018 and warrantless seizure of cell phone location records from service providers. Here's a cybersecurity expert and former law clerk, Neil Gorsuch. My name is Jamil Jaffer. I'm an assistant professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Carpenter takes place in the context of a series of laws, um, uh, including the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, uh, that were designed to protect uh, various types of, of, of communications conducted uh, by Americans in the United States principally. And uh, what it does is it creates a, 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 a set of rules and directions by which uh, the government can obtain uh, court orders to access certain types of information, right? That information might be uh, communications content. Um, it, might be, it might be communications that, that are in transit. It might be communications that are stored um, on a server or on a hard drive or on a device. Um, it might be metadata, right? It, information about a communication, not the communication itself, but the information surrounding the communication. You can nowadays, with a cell phone device, not just talk about who made the call, where the call went, who the email went to, where the email came from, right? But you can tell IP addresses, what network was it connected to, possibly. Uh, you can also tell where the device might have been when it sent it, right? What kind of uh, operating system was utilized, what kind of browser was utilized, what version of the browser. All of that's in the metadata. And so what was going on in Carpenter was a certain type of metadata um, that was being accessed by the government through the Stored Communications Act, which by statute permitted the government to get access to that data with something sort of less than a Fourth Amendment warrant. It's certainly data about you, but does that make it yours or the cell phone companies? Here's Oren Kerr. Well, this is the question that the court is is grappling with, whether to see cell phone usage as like the third party doctrine cases on the theory that when you use your phone, turn on your phone, well, the way the technology works is you're disclosing your location to the cell provider because otherwise you can't place a call. The provider needs to know where you are in order to route your communications. And so, you know, you can look at this as sort of being your, and it, it, when you turn on your phone, you're saying, hey, phone company, I'm over here. Can you route communications to me? And that, that kind of, hey, I'm over here, or the phone company's record about your, you know, where they heard you say, hey, I'm over here, that that's like talking to them. And therefore, that's 
you know, information that's theirs, not yours anymore. That's kind of one way of looking at it. And the other is to kind of think more about, well, what's the effect of the technology? It's akin to the government having a tracking device on you over time. And that's really kind of a, that's a, a, a disturbing change in how much power the government has. And therefore that should, you know, we should deem that a violation of a reasonable expectation of privacy in order to, um, make sure the government doesn't get too much power. And there are really interesting questions like, um, you know, what is the baseline for how much privacy people have? And um, if people don't understand how technology works, if they're actually giving up their technology, is the answer for people to learn about how the technology works and make their decision? Or is the answer for the Supreme Court to say, um, we hereby say you don't have to learn it because we're gonna protect it no matter what. And, And this baseline question of like, what is the Supreme Court doing with this, this this cat's test is is very much in play in the opinions in Carpenter. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts writing for the majority. Now, in this case, the police suspected Timothy Carpenter of participating in the armed robbery of several Radio Shack and, ironically enough, T-Mobile stores. They knew his cell phone number and applied for court orders, but not search warrants to get from his phone company the CSLI for the period during which the robberies took place. CSLI is cell site location information. But back to the chief. Altogether, the government was able to obtain some 13,000 location points cataloging Carpenter's movements over 127 days, more than 100 location points per day. Sure enough, the CSLI placed Carpenter as the prosecutor told the jury, right where the robberies were at the exact time of the robberies. He was convicted and sentenced to over 100 years. Now in the past, the government could track you at most for a few days with the great expenditure of resources. But with CSLI, our cell phones become like ankle monitors, enabling near-perfect surveillance at nearly no expense. And the government does not have to decide in advance that they want to track you, it can comb through the database of records and find out what you were doing years earlier. We think that allowing government access to these location records, which can reveal what one of our cases called the privacies of life, enables all-encompassing government surveillance of the sort that troubled the drafters of the Fourth Amendment. In light of the deeply revealing nature of CSLI, its depth, breadth, and comprehensive reach, and the inescapable and automatic nature of its collection, The fact that such information is gathered by a third party does not make it any less deserving of Fourth Amendment protection. Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan joined Roberts' majority opinion. Turning to the dissents, there was no shortage. All four dissenters wrote separately. We'll focus on Justice Gorsuch's dissent. Gorsuch concludes that Carpenter may have been able to assert a property right, but he only pursued his expectation of privacy under Katz, a ruling, he says, that goes against the text and original understanding of the Fourth Amendment. Here, Gorsuch is taking up Scalia's mantle of resurrecting the property-based approach. But tonight, don't call it a comeback. Gorsuch explains that the framers chose not to protect privacy in some ethereal way dependent on judicial intuitions. They chose instead to protect privacy in particular places and things persons, houses, papers, and effects, and against particular threats, unreasonable governmental searches and seizures. By comparison, Gorsuch asks, 
What even is a reasonable expectation of privacy? Is this an empirical question, a normative one? And are judges the right branch of government to make this call? James Stern elaborates on this. So Justice Gorsuch says the way we should go about this is by looking to, rather than sort of imagining reasonable expectations of privacy, which is a very amorphous concept for a number of reasons, you know, in the context of new technology, it may be that there are no expectations one way or the other. Uh, It's never really been explained by the court conclusively whether when we talk about a reasonable expectation, we mean uh, that it, that these are uh, actually prevailing expectations like in society or whether it's an expectation that the court itself performing a kind of independent normative evaluation thinks is a, uh, a reasonable expectation. Gorsuch explains that the CAT standard has led to often unpredictable and unbelievable results. He writes, take Florida versus Riley, which says that a police helicopter hovering 400 feet above a person's property invades no reasonable expectation of privacy. Try that one out on your neighbor's. Or California versus Greenwood, which holds that a person has no reasonable expectation of privacy in the garbage he puts out for collection. In that case, the court said that the homeowners forfeited their privacy interests because it is common knowledge that plastic garbage bags left on or at the side of a public street are readily accessible to animals, children, scavengers, snoops, and other members of the public. As Oren Kerr explains... Justice Gorsuch, um, clear that he opposes the CAT's reasonable expectation of privacy test. Uh, He does pick up Justice Scalia's mantle and says it has no basis in the text. This is totally made up. Um, These are these random results. And this is, you know, we we need law. We before we had cats, he said we used to follow the law and we need to go back to the law. And what was the law we need to go back to? Here's more from Justice Gorsuch. There is another way. From the founding until the 1960s, the right to assert a Fourth Amendment claim didn't depend on your ability to appeal to a judge's personal sensibilities about the reasonableness of your expectations of privacy. It was tied to the law. True to the words of the Fourth Amendment and their original understanding, the traditional approach asked if a house, paper, or effect was yours under law. Gorsuch explains that he doesn't have all the answers, and courts have their work cut out in future cases to figure out the contours of the traditional approach to the Fourth Amendment. One problem is the third-party doctrine. Here's what he says. Just because you entrust your data, in some cases your modern-day papers and effects, to a third party may not mean you lose any Fourth Amendment interest in its contents. And just because you have to entrust a third party with your data doesn't necessarily mean you should lose all Fourth Amendment protections in it. Gorsuch further points out, the fact that a third party has access to or possession of your papers and effects does not necessarily eliminate your interest in them. Ever toss your keys to a valet at a restaurant? You wouldn't expect the valet to lend your car to his buddy. Entrusting your stuff to others is a bailment. A bailment is the delivery of personal property by one person, the bailor, to another, the bailee, who holds the property for a certain purpose. And a bailee normally owes a legal duty to keep the item safe. Former Gorsuch clerk Jamil Jaffer provides some perspective on this. Well, look, far be it for me to disagree with my my boss, my, tw- my two-time boss, you know, um, uh, on his analysis of the law. But I guess what I would say is it is contrary to our understanding of the law, or at least what it's been, you know, uh, under the third-party doctrine since Smith and Miller. There is something to Justice Gorsuch's opinion, though, right, which is you don't expect the phone company 
to use the information about your location for purposes other than getting that phone call to your phone. There is some validity to the concern that are going to do something that I didn't want them to do with it. But that's the same as me telling you because, you know, we're, I think we're accomplices. I'm saying, hey, I'm going to go to our criminal friend's house tomorrow and make the plan. You rat me out to the cops. You're not, you're not using that information for the purpose I want you to use it for. Are you a Baileyan? Are we a Bailey and a Baylor? Not sure. Don't think so. At least not historically. That's how we it historically, at least. But back to Gorsuch. He says this is an important discussion, but unfortunately, Mr. Carpenter failed to raise a property-based Fourth Amendment argument. That left the lower court to the usual cat's hand-waving, which does not serve the development of a sound or fully protective Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So what would a return to the property-based approach look like? Here's Oren Kerr. If you use a physical intrusion test, that's going to be pretty narrow. So physical intrusion is relatively clear. That's, you know, that's like actual physical entry where you run into the interesting questions where you say, well, what, what if it's not just physical intrusion, but some sort of analogies to trespass, some sort of analogies to the home, home-like invasions, that kind of thing. And then I think the, the, real law test, sort of the, the, whether it's trespass or something else, very closely resembles the CATS test. And they actually begin to do the same thing. They're looking at kind of what's an analogy to the physical invasion of a home? When does technology allow the government to do things which it couldn't do before, which have the effect of sort of invading private spaces, whether they're physical spaces or virtual spaces? And, and so what I find really interesting about Justice Gorsuch's ideas for what this true Fourth Amendment would look like is I think he's actually largely, he's largely sort of saying what cats is. He's sort of looking at these factors and we need to think about this and maybe maybe the positive law matters, but it shouldn't always matter. Maybe other things should matter. And to my mind, what he's really doing is kind of, he's, he's talking about a textualist or originalist sort of le- like language for the current CATS test. Uh, And so I don't think there's actually that much difference between where George Justice Gorsuch is and where Chief Justice Roberts is in substance. I think they really make a, you know, they're they're very into different language. A lot of this stuff you can phrase in different language and that's fine, but the substance I think ends up largely being the same. The justices will no doubt continue to debate the best way to approach new technology from a Fourth Amendment perspective. Here's James Stern. You know, it's uncharted territories. I think, you know, if you had to ask me to predict what the what the regulatory landscape for that is going to look like in 20 years, what's Congress going to do? What are state legislatures going to do when it comes to regulating uh, uh, privacy, cybersecurity, information about you in the hands of third parties? You know, I don't really know. I think it's hard to predict. Um, And that puts a lot of pressure on the Supreme Court uh, in this area, although they seem to welcome it. And given the increasing interest in originalism among the current justices, there's an intriguing dichotomy in the works. Here's Oren. So what makes Fourth Amendment law super interesting going forward is that you've got a mix of new technologies. You're going to have cases on how the Fourth Amendment applies to uh, uh, searches of cell phones and computers at the border. That's an issue which is likely to come up in the next year or two. Um, You've got lots of computer search questions that the lower courts have divided on. At the same time, you've got the Supreme Court increasingly justices looking to the original public meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Um, and what is a search for which there's like basically nothing or nothing 
uh, of, express on this question because everyone was focused on general warrants at the time. So you've got a combination of incre briefing increasingly focused on 18th century history, technology that is very 21st century, and trying to figure out like, how do we reconcile these? What do we, what do we do when there's not really much of a history, but we want to follow history? We've got cases that are not expressed in an originalist or textualist way um, with technology, which is, you know, your, your latest model of the iPhone. And, and that I think is this fabulous, at least for academics, fabulous tension um, of, about the newest and the oldest. And what do you do when there's just a lot of discretion about how to land these sort of very abstract questions of, you know, what is a search of an effect when that's really kind of, you know, is that like what you can, you can, you can think of that in a lot of different ways. And so there's a lot of, a lot of open questions and we're, it's going to be exciting to see what the Supreme Court does. It's kind of like the Jetsons meets James Madison. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I like that. Will a majority of the Supreme Court follow Justice Gorsuch's lead? Will the property rights approach knock out Katz's reasonable expectation of privacy? Time will tell. But one thing's for sure. Don't call it a comeback. Thanks for listening to Dist. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. If you'd like, you can promote it. Um, I will, of course. Um, send it to friends, family, and other. <laughs> <laughs> Retweet, as they say. Oh, I, I, first of all, I have a comment about dissents, which is Justice Gorsuch's dissent is barely a dissent in that case. Yeah, um, it's it's sort of only at the sort of so to speak at the very last minute that it becomes. It could just as easily have been a concurrence. Here's done. Oh, sorry. Done. Done. <laughs> I previously served as a, a law clerk to Judge Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit, as well as Judge then Judge Neil Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit. Uh, and and then when he became a justice uh, for a brief four-month stint uh, as a law clerk for Justice Gorsuch on the Supreme Court as the oldest Supreme Court clerk in modern history. <laughs> he had he had a few of those uh, granddad clerks, right? <laughs> we were all old. It was it was a funny thing because you know Justice Gorsuch was at the time the youngest youngest justice to serve in recent memory, um, and we were the oldest law clerks. Are judges the right branch of government to make this call? <laughs> don't use that as a blooper oh my god you know i'm not enough of a, an expert in justice harlan and his psychoanalyzing and his sort of, him yeah to, to be able to psychoanalyze his motivations what i do know is that he was sort of a master of the uh the quiet concurrence or reshaping dissent I'm going to knock you out. Mama, Mama said, said knock, knock you out. out. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even tell you how many times I've listened to that song oh in God. the course of writing this.